we are really good at making plans. Uh, we, make, we make plans all the time about our lives, and, and we are really good at making them, but not very good at changing them. Usually what happens is that something in our life changes to the point where those plans no longer are possible. Usually this is, this is painful, this is hard, this is difficult. And so all of a sudden that, that future that we had imagined that we had planned for is gone, and we have to imagine a new future. We have to, we have to make some new plans. And this is, very, this is very disruptive in a lot of ways, but it's also something that, that is very helpful. I, I, think that, I think that something happens when we experience pain, when we experience suffering, that brings a little bit of clarity to our lives. It brings, it brings things into perspective in a way that, that we don't really have at, at, a, at a good place. If you think about your life and the, the turning points, those transitional moments, those moments where you can look back and say things became different after that, my guess and my experience suggests that those were not moments of joy, of, of accomplishment. Those were moments of hardship. Those were moments of, of change that was difficult. If you look back on your life and your spiritual walk with God, those moments where you were closest to God, those moments where you were, you were connected in a way that was was so real, was so just incredible, I'm going to guess that many of those were times where, where things were difficult, where pain was, was very real in your life. There, there, there's a way that suffering brings clarity to our lives. There's a way that, that those hard things put things in perspective and draw us closer to God. And, and sometimes we forget that those difficult times are just a season of preparation for us for down the road. Uh, a few months ago... I was, I was online, I was reading some news, and, and there was this story of, of these churches in Alexandria, Egypt. And, and over in Alexandria, in Egypt, the, the Christians there are Coptic Christians. It's just another branch of Christianity. But these, these Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, were experiencing severe persecution. There were, there were terrorists who were coming, and they were, they were firebombing churches. They were, they were attacking churches during services. People were dying. It, it was horrific. I've read other, other articles about how the discrimination in Egypt is, is very real for those Christians. That there is kind of a, an, an economic ceiling that they can't really get over. That there are certain jobs that are just reserved for them and they're the lowest of the low and, and they have a hard time getting past that. And, and then, of course, we saw in the news on, on January 25th these, these protests in Egypt that just blew up. The, these protests uh, that were organized by, by the things that, that we use, uh, Facebook and Twitter, uh, these protests that were, were made up of a lot of young and unemployed men and women who were simply tired of Mubarak's control, Mubarak's reign, this, this, this dictator who has been in control for years, for generations. And they, they really only had one request, that, that the guy leave. There really wasn't a clear uh, change and command that they wanted. There wasn't really a, a clear direction that, that people were unified around as to what was next. They just wanted him to leave. And we saw these protests, and, and for the most part, fairly peaceful protests. We heard about some of the more, uh, more, more uh, violent things. They made the news. We heard about some of the, the, the interactions that, that media had with, with protests there. But by and large, it was a fairly peaceful protest. And, and the thing about this whole experience is that even today, as the military is in control, Mubarak's gone, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty going forward as to what things are going to look like there. We know that, that this kind of that spirit and that kind of idea of revolution has spread to other countries, and we're seeing it play out in very violent ways in, in places like Libya. But in Egypt, there was kind of this unique uh, thing going on there, this unique, the unique movement 
of kind of a peaceful resistance and a peaceful revolution. But all of it, it was unclear and still is as to what's next. And for a Coptic Christian who's experienced the persecution of Egypt, who, who 20 years ago made up 10% of the population, these, these Christians now make up five because they've just been pushed out of the country. For them, the future is very, very bleak. It, it just is. There's not a lot of scenarios for them to be optimistic about as they move forward. But in the midst of this uncertainty, in the midst of their pain and their persecution and their suffering, something, something happened. A, a group of them did something that was, that was profound. And, and there, was a, there was a picture that caught this. This is in uh, uh, Tabir Square, Liberation, Liberation Square. You see on the news the, the thousands and thousands of people gathering together. This is where they were. And, and after Mubarak's kind of made a couple of proclamations, I'm not going anywhere, I'm not going not not to leave, the protesters just started living in the square. And so daily life was going on, and, and they had to kind of continue with some routines. And, and for Muslims, this, this includes praying five times a day. And so the picture you're looking at in the background, you have hundreds of Muslims on their knees in prayer. Hundreds of Muslims on their knees in prayer. But in the foreground, you see two men holding hands. Those two men are Christians. And they formed a human chain around these Muslims who are praying. They, they decided to protect the Muslims because, because at the time, there were pro-government forces that were attacking people. And they were vulnerable while they were praying. And so these Christians who have no assurance as to what tomorrow is going to bring, these Christians who, who have experienced persecution at the hands of many Muslims, these Christians who don't know what's next, in this moment decided to make a bold move of faith, decided to take a bold move of action, uh, uh, of interacting with, with what's going on, and they protect the Muslims around them. It, it's just To me, this just blows me away. It's so easy to get caught up on the big picture, but really it's moments like these that, that make this unique. It's moments like these that we can learn from. And we look at things like this and we think to ourselves, how in the world would I react in that situation? If I was there, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I could even go down there to protest. I don't know if I could even participate in something like that because of the danger that was there. How do you get to that point? And I think we make some assumptions about images like these and the stories we hear about bold faith. The assumption is that that's a spontaneous thing. That they just woke up that morning and say, hey, I'm going to do something big. And we forget all the suffering all the persecution that God uses a time of formation in their lives to get them to this point. We forget that there was a season of preparation that was very, very difficult that, that moved them to this point. And that was a hard process. We just focus on the end result, this, and forget everything that led up to it. Uh, this morning we're, we're looking at, at Elijah. There's this character in 1 Kings. And we're going to be camping out in chapter 17 of 1 Kings. And and Elijah is a prophet. Elijah is someone that God raises up to be a spokesman, to be someone who speaks into a world and says, you're off, things aren't quite right, and this is how it should be. And so Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 kind of has a situation where he experiences suffering in a very, very real way. We, we, we talk about uh, things in the Old Testament, and sometimes it's easy to get very disconnected from the events that are going on there. So, so let me give you a bit of context. In 1 Kings chapter 17, you have a king. His name's Ahab. And Ahab is the 17th king in a line of kings that were absolutely horrible. Not just bad politicians, not just bad leaders, but, but evil. But absolutely evil. 
a line of 17 kings who are, who are getting it wrong, who aren't following God, who aren't honoring God. The people of God are being led by men who don't honor God. And so Ahab is kind of the, kind of, kind of culminates this line of, of, of wickedness. And he kind of reaches the pinnacle. See, Ahab was married to a, a queen, and her name is Jezebel. And Jezebel was, was viewed as kind of the, the most evil, the most, the most hideous, ugly person in, in, in history. Not just in the Bible, but in history. And Jezebel had, had a way of, of kind of changing the way things were done. And, and Jezebel came from a situation where she worshipped false gods. Where Jezebel worshipped gods that dealt with the weather and dealt with fertility. And so this, this religion that she brought in replaced worshipping Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that we worship today. And so Jezebel brings in this, this competing religion. And the ways that they would, they would worship in that, the rituals that they would do would involve all kinds of just horrible, evil things like prostitution. They would make sacrifices and they would, they would not just sacrifice animals, but they would sacrifice children. The human sacrifice was at the core of this. And so Elijah is here in this situation facing such evilness to the extreme, just, just beyond what we can even imagine. 17 kings in a row and God finally says, I've had enough. But God doesn't raise up an army. God doesn't raise up another competing politician. He raises up one guy. He raises up one guy. Because there's power in that. And we think that that's not uh, applicable to our lives. But I think about a high school girl who, who just says, you know what? I'm, I'm going to remain sexually pure. I'm not going to go down that road. I'm going to save that for marriage. I think about the impact that she has. I think about somebody who works in an office and, and everyone in the office lacks integrity financially. They, they cheat each other. They cheat the, they cheat the company. They, they take all these little shortcuts all along the way and they never get caught. And I think about that person that sees all this and sees their coworkers benefiting from this corrupt system and they just say, you know what? Even though I could, I'm not going to. I'm going to keep my integrity. I think about people who say, I know how to cheat on my taxes, but I'm not going to because that's not the right thing. I think about the power of one person. And the power of Elijah in here is just that he is one person. Elijah's name is even a sermon. Elijah's name itself even has a loaded message. It means that my God is Jehovah. So Elijah himself comes to a situation. He's raised up by God. He's going to be used. He's going to confront this evil king. And we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. It'll be on the screen. We can follow along as well. First, first, first Kings chapter 17, verse 1 says this. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishib, the Gilead, it said, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. There's going to be no rain for the next few years. And the only thing that's going to change it is God working through me. Now, imagine for a moment what this means, the repercussions of a drought uh, of this scale. In, in that time, rain, crops, the agrarian society drove everything. It drove the economy. It drove the stability of, of the political makeup. It drove the army because you have to feed the army. Everything is connected back to this. Everything about this is just attacking Ahab and his whole regime. Everything about this is taking power away from him. Not just in the, the tangible sense, but also in the spiritual sense. Because remember, he's brought in gods who deal with the weather, who deal with the crops. And he's attacking that at, at its very core. And so Elijah has this moment where he confronts Ahab, he confronts the evil king. He's probably thinking, man, this is just like Moses. 
Moses went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go. Plagues came down. Moses led the people out. Moses became this, this seminal character in, in his mind and in the people's mind around him. And so he thought, man, I'm going to be the next Moses. In his mind, he was at the, the peak of, of his existence. This is what I was meant to do. I'm here. All those plans I've made are coming together just perfectly, and I'm achieving it right now. But something interesting happens. Something interesting happens to Elijah that I think that we all realize. I think we all realize that to really be formed, suffering must take place. And we don't like to talk about pain. We don't talk, talk about that. And it would be really easy for me just to say that, that if you're a good Christian, that you won't have any pain in your life. But that would be lying. And, and there's a quote from a, from a pastor and author named John Ortberg that I want to read to you. Uh, it, it gives me pause, and I hope it does to you. But he says, The number one contributor to spiritual growth was not transformational teaching. It was not being in a small group. It was not reading deep books. It was not energetic worship experiences. It was not finding meaningful ways to serve. It was suffering. People said they grow more during seasons of loss, pain, and crisis than they did at any other time. We realize that that is is a big motivator. That pushes us to change. We realize that that something happens when, when we have to become dependent on God. We realize that that pain can be redeemed. And we know it in our lives and our story, but it doesn't make it any easier to go through. For Elijah, he has to enter into a season of preparation. He has to go through this pain, this suffering, in order to be used in a, in a real way. See, that confrontation with Ahab wasn't it. And, and right after that, in verse 2, the story picks up uh, with Elijah being told something that was probably pretty shocking to him. Verse 2 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east." of the Jordan. Hey, Elijah, you just had this incredible moment, but now I want you to run and hide. Now I want you to run and hide, and, and not, not just anywhere, but I want you to cross the Jordan. And, and in a Hebrew mind, the Jordan is this, this very definitive and very strong boundary. And, and, and the Jordan does a great job of keeping people out and keeping people in. And so for them, a people that are so concerned about remaining special in the eyes of God, about remaining separate from some of the, the negative influences culturally around them, the Jordan provided that protection. Uh, for a people that are so concerned about their mere existence and, and, are, and are incredibly, incredibly uh, defen- defensive, they, they, they will always fight for their own existence, the Jordan provides a mean of, means of protection. And for a people who had this idea that they are only blessed in Israel, that somehow God's blessing is tied up to the physical land itself, God says, no, I want you to go and get, get out of here. And so what God's teaching is kind of a sub-story here is that God operates wherever. So God sends, sends Elijah east of the Jordan to this ravine, to the Kareth Ravine. And Kareth itself literally means cut off, isolated, removed. So not only is he going to a place regionally that, that in his mind is removed, but he's going to a place that literally that's what it means. And so Elijah enters into a time of isolated pain. Isolated pain. He's all alone. He's made plans for his life. God has moved him in another direction, made him be alone and in pain. You know, for me, in in college, I made a lot of plans. And uh, those plans weren't really coming together by the time I was graduating. And so I didn't have a job by the time I was about to graduate. And so what do you do when you don't have a job? You call people who you think could get you a job. And so I start calling people, and I get an interview at this church in Illinois. 
And I go to the interview of this church, go to Mawikwa, Illinois, the, the, the Indian word that means muddy water, so it was a, it was a cultural hotspot. Uh, but, uh, but I go to Mawikwa, Illinois, and I interview for the youth pastor job. And I walk in, and it's, just, it's a great church. It's a small town, but a pretty big church for, for the town that it's in. And it's got this incredible history and uh, just great people, you know, just, just small town folk and farmers and people that are just, are just, they're just great to be around. And I interview, and, and they like me, and they, they, want, they offer me the job. And so uh, I decided I'm going to take it. I, I decided I'm going to accept this position. And, and I failed to realize or failed to realize what this meant, but in the four months or so that before I interviewed, they had gone from five pastoral staff, five people on staff at the church, to one. The people had left for various reasons, and, and there wasn't a, a one singular reason, because honestly that would have been easier to handle, but there were numerous problems. There were all kinds of issues, and, and it wasn't that the people there weren't aware of them. They were fully aware and were trying to correct them, but there was just a culture of, of, a, of a void in leadership, and there was a culture of unforgiveness, and it was, just, it was a mess. And so Heidi and I move. Well, actually, I move first because I'm there for three weeks, and then I go get married, and then we move out there together. And so in the span of a month, I get a new job. I get really my first full-time job out of college. I get married. I move out of state for the first time in my life. I take Heidi, who was five hours away from family, to now being ten hours away from family. And I know, and we know no one in the town. And the church is a mess. Over the next two years or so, that children's pastor who was there when I moved in, he, he left and took another job. The senior pastor who he had hired right after I got there was fired for, for lack of leadership. And all of a sudden, at age 24, I am it. I am the most tenured person on staff we hired a worship pastor but it was his first ministry we we had people come in to preach but day to day i was there it was me and it was horrible it was hard it was painful heidi and i not only experienced pain there in the church but we experienced pain just in the fact that we were very alone we were very isolated we had, we had all these friends that we had back at college, but they were a state away. And we had family that was, that was even farther away. And we, we lacked that, that support system. We didn't really know what to do about it. Thankfully, we like each other, and so we had something to do. But, but it was hard, and it was isolated, and we were all alone. But in those moments, even though we did plenty of whining and complaining about it, but in those moments... We learned how to depend on God in a new way. Or at least you start to learn. So for Elijah, he's cut off. He's, he's all alone. In verse 4, God tells him what he's going to do for him. Chapter 17, verse 4 says this. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. So Elijah really quickly learns that in this place where I'm completely cut off, I'm going to have to be totally dependent. I have to embrace this total dependence. If you're taking notes, that's the second one. This total dependence that, that means I have to rely on God for everything. I have to rely on God for every ounce of security, every ounce of provision, Every ounce of comfort, comfort because I'm in this isolated position, this painful position, and only God can provide. Only God can do this. And so this is a very humbling experience. 
Elijah's a prophet. He's a man of stature. He would be looked up upon in the society, but now he's removed from society. Elijah's somebody who, who specializes in public speaking, in public acts that, that are countercultural, that, that, sh- that give a message in and of themselves, and now he's all by himself. Elijah's somebody that is always rubbing up against other people, and now he's in this ravine where he sees no one but ravens. Now, now it's, kind of, it's kind of weird to think, ravens, man, like that bumper video we show with the ravens, you think of like Edgar Allan Poe, you think of, think, of, think of death, you think of just all these dark images. And if you think about it, if a raven's going to bring you meat, what kind of meat are they going to bring? They're probably going to bring something that's already dead and has been dead for a while. So there's nothing really glamorous about this. You think about the brook, it's in the middle of a drought. And so when there's a drought, water stops running. Flowing water stops. It starts to pool in pockets. And so he's drinking out of stagnant water probably. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing pretty about this. There's nothing exciting about this. This wasn't a resort to get away and rest and recover. This was a place to grow, be challenged, and learn what it meant to be totally dependent on God. Now, I, I'm sharing a little bit of my story, and I, don't, I, I, I experience pain, and I've experienced hardship, but I, I haven't experienced the pain maybe you have. And you can tell me what it's like to, to be fired. You can tell me what it's like to, to lose a job and to have insecurity about finances. You can tell me what it's like to lose a loved one suddenly and tragically. You can tell me all of that. You can tell me how, how horrible that is and how hard that is. But I, I, I'm guessing that you would tell me how you found new strength, that you found new ways to rely on God, that you found ways that at first you wanted to be bitter, you wanted to, to strike back, you wanted to question God, but you resisted. Or you learned through doing that that you, you shouldn't be because it's not helping. And, and maybe you're at different points in that stage in that process, but ultimately suffering pushes us towards dependence. And it's humbling. We lack control in this situation. It's hard because we, we can't do it on our own. But ultimately it teaches us so much about, about God. And so God provides just enough for Elijah. He doesn't show up at the first of the week and provide a whole truckload of food. He doesn't show up just in the morning with food. He sends the ravens in the morning and in the evening. God was going to make sure that Elijah was depending on him. I was driving uh, down uh, around 465 um, this uh, last weekend, and I saw a billboard. And it was for a, a local university, and it was, it was advertising an MBA program. It was clearly designed, uh, targeted at, at adult, adults who had been out of college for a while. And the tagline was just, secure your future. Secure your future. And, and I completely understand what they're saying, and I'm all for, 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 uh, for bettering yourself through education, but, but they're selling something that I don't know if they can really deliver on. They're selling the security that you're not going to face any more problems if you go to these classes and get this piece of paper and put it on your resume. They're selling something that you really can't buy, this feeling of security. But I, I would venture to guess that they have quite a few people in their classes. Because right now we're all looking for security. We're all looking for ways to kind of take care of the future. We're, we went through that time where our retirement dwindled and we're starting to make plans again about, okay, how do we get back to that, that point where we were? We think about our savings. We think about whatever it is financially. We think about our relationships. Whatever it might be, we're always looking to secure our future. And so when I, was, uh, when I was in Illinois, I tried to make plans to secure my future. I looked around. I said, this isn't good. 
this is bad. People are leaving, and I got people coming into my office on a weekly basis yelling at me and complaining about stuff that I have nothing to do with. I've got people that are, that are questioning uh, uh, what we're doing as a church, and, 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 I, and I almost want to say, well, I, I kind of agree with you, but I can't. I, I'm going to, going to meetings uh, on a weekly basis that are lasting hours and nothing gets done. Like, it was just so, so difficult. And the people there were just as frustrated as I was, but I was stuck. And so I started making plans, like, okay, I've got to get out of here. We've got to take another job. We've got to move. I'll, 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 I'll wash cars. I'll sell coffee. I'll, 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 I'll shovel things. I'll do whatever it takes to get out of here and, and still provide for my family. And so we would have these conversations. And for some reason, they always ended up on the kitchen floor. And we'd be crying. And we would be just, just in pain and hurting. And we would hear about our friends doing this incredible thing. Or our family is so far away. And we're missing another family birthday party or whatever it is. And we're sitting there up against the dishwasher crying our eyes out saying, we've got to get out of here. We've got to get out of here. We go update our resumes, and things wouldn't work out. We probably did this five or six times in the span of about a year and a half where we looked to leave. And we did this over and over and over again, and we, we did our fair share of whining. We did our fair share of complaining. We got bitter at times. We, we, uh, we complained to our friends. We, we told people that it was so-and-so's fault. We didn't really own up to things that were, we were responsible for. And, and, and honestly... I think for a long stretches of that time, I wasn't a very good pastor. I don't think I was a very good uh, a minister to students. And so it's not, a, not an easy thing where all of a sudden we learn how to become dependent on God, and it's simple, and it's, it's great, and, and life's good from that point forward. But eventually, God kind of opened some things up. And in opening things up, He made me be dependent on Him. He made us be dependent on Him. And so, so all of a sudden, Heidi and I start looking for jobs again, and Heidi gets a job at Anderson. And so Heidi accepts this position, and I start looking for jobs myself. And I do, do something stupid. I do something really stupid on paper. I quit a job without having a job. And so I tell, tell them I'm leaving, and I'm going, and, and we're going to go live in a dorm uh, with freshman students, and we're going to do this, and, and we don't have, I don't have a job, and I don't know what's, what's going to happen. And so we announced this, and 60 days later, I had my last Sunday, and I still don't have a job. It's about a week after my last Sunday. We're, we're literally, like, in between homes. And, and all of a sudden, I, I get a call from Genesis saying, hey, I want you to come and, and interview for the student minister job. And so I go and interview for it, and it's great, and this is, this is where I want to be, and I feel like this is where God wants me to be. But I do another stupid thing on paper. I take a part-time position. <laughs> I take a part-time position that, that doesn't pay a lot. I take, I take a 20-hour job with no real promises, no real solid promises of full-time employment, no real promises of benefits. This is stupid. But in that moment, and in the year that I was part-time, God taught me how to be dependent on Him. And we were fine. And I'm not here to tell you that if you depend on God, everything will be fine, but I'm here to tell you that we were fine. And God provided in that. But it took us to go through this season of preparation that was very, very hard to live in this podunk little town where literally at the four-way stop downtown, you had north-south Main Street that intersected with east West Main Street. Like it just, it was just weird, right? And, and so we're living there and it's this horrible church situation. But in all of that, God redeemed those hard times, that pain that we had to get us ready for what was next. And I believe that's what's going on with Elijah. And I believe that's what's going on in, in all of our lives. That when we interact, that hard stuff, there really isn't, there really isn't, there really, there really is a point to it all. And God redeems it. And so, so Elijah's learning what it means to be obedient. Elijah's now starting to look for that next step in verse 7. 
Verse 7, the story continues. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Like, really? Oh, that's what happens when the drought happens. It dries up. So, so the brook dries up. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So again, he's going to another location. What's this location mean? What's going on there? Well, Sidon was, was, was kind of, was again outside of Israel. So he's going to another place that's on the outside. And he's going to a place that has all kinds of, of connections to this idol worship. Remember the, the child sacrifice stuff, this, this horribly depraved thing that's going on. That's kind of the capital. That's kind of the center of it all. And he's going to speak to a widow, the lowest of the low social class. Because, because God is putting this in front of him and saying, I've put you in a place of pain, and, I, and I've brought you through it. And I've taught you how to be totally dependent on me. But now I need you to show unconditional obedience. I need you to be obedient to me completely. If you're taking notes, that's the final, the final note, is unconditional obedience. I need you to, to, really, to really follow me in a powerful way. And so I would imagine that Elijah's pretty surprised at this point. I would imagine Elijah wasn't expecting this next. Elijah was like, hey, God, okay, am I going to come back and get a great position and, and be in this awesome place of influence and power and get to confront Ahab again and lead my people back to the way things should be? No, no, no. You're going to go to another foreign town, and you're going to find a widow, and she's going to feed you. And you're going to have to go through this. So Elijah goes, and he gets to, he gets to Sidon, and he, he's walking in town, and he sees the widow. And the widow is out collecting sticks. And so Elijah approaches her and you know, what are you doing? What's going on? Or do you know who I am? And, and, and the widow just says, I'm out collecting sticks so I can go home and make one last meal for my son and I. See, we're out of flour and oil. And so we're going to have one last meal and then we're going to die. And so Elijah walks right into this, this, this really intense situation. And through faith in God and through, through God's speaking through him and through the Spirit, he says, no, you're not going to die. And that is your son. In fact, let's go back to your home. Fix me the biscuits. Fix me the bread, whatever it is. And, and I promise you, as, as God lives, you're not going to run out of flour and oil. And so I imagine the widow at this point is like, okay, what, what do I have to lose? What do I have to lose at this point? And so they go back home, and, and that's what she does. She makes, she makes dinner for Elijah and her son and herself. And sure enough, she doesn't run out of flour and oil. This incredible miracle happens where they, they have kind of an endless supply of food. It's kind of like God's version of the all-you-can-eat buffet. And so all this is going on, and, and this incredible miracle is happening, and, and Elijah stays there for a while. But then something else happens. Unexpectedly, tragically, suddenly, the son dies. And mom, the widow, does what, what all moms would do, what we all would do in those moments. We start to ask a lot of questions. She goes to Elijah and says, Hey, did you just show up here so you could punish me? Was it because your God is so powerful and so, and so mean that he had to come bring you here to show me how wrong I was for so many years and you're going to kill my son? Is that what this is about? I mean, why did you kill me? Why did you kill my son? And she has this crisis of faith, this, this, this moment where she is, she is questioning everything, as I think we all have moments of. And Elijah does something that really is, is unique in Scripture. He goes up to the room where, where the, the boy has just died. He lays down next to the boy. He picks up the boy's body. And he places it on top of him. He starts praying. He says, God, I don't know if this is what you want, but if it is, bring him back to life. 
raise him back from the dead, and he starts praying. And all of a sudden, the boy wakes up. And there's really, there's really not a lot of precedent for this in the Bible. There's really not a, not a, lot, of, a lot of detail that goes on there. But the important thing that happens is what happens next is in verse 24 of chapter 17 is that the, the, the mom responds, the last verse of the chapter. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Now I know you're a man of God. See, this is the moment that all of that pain, all of that isolation, all of that obedience, all of that dependence that Elijah had to go through and learn was leading up to this. Was leading up to this for Elijah to realize who he is. For Elijah to be told by someone else, this is you. For Elijah to have these incredible miracles, for this all to happen, that was the point that Elijah had to, had to reach. All that time in the ravine was not wasted. The pain that you're going through is not pointless. The pain that you're going through, the suffering, the hardship, whatever it is, the conflict, there's, 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 there's redemption there. God is willing to use that in a way to bring you closer to Him. And really, as hard as it might be, we have to start to look at suffering as a gift of opportunity. We don't, we don't want to go through it. We don't choose to go through it. We wouldn't wish it on anyone else. But it is a gift of opportunity. It's a gift to draw closer to Him. I don't, I don't want to go through what I went through in Illinois. With all the good stuff that was there while the bad stuff was happening, I don't want to go through that again. I don't want to wish that on anybody. But I'm really glad I went through it. Because I'm, I'm here now. And I'm in the place I'm supposed to be. And I know a lot more about myself in God's eyes than I did before. That suffering that you're going through, there's a point to it. God is able to redeem it. You're, you haven't been abandoned. You haven't been, been, been left out. It may feel that way, but he's right there. Because he can minister to Elijah in the place that's cut off, in the place that's foreign, in the place that's way out there. He can minister to Elijah there. Of course he can minister to you. Of course he can, he can provide for your needs. Because, because that suffering is just a season of preparation. It's just a time for you to get ready for what's next. The band's going to come up, and we're going to sing a song. And, and the, the song is based out of a passage out of Romans 8 that basically says that God takes all, everything and works it back for his good. He takes all the hard stuff, and he, he works it for his good. And, and it's a new song, but I think this is a... This is an opportunity for you maybe to declare. Maybe you to sing out exactly what's going on. That you really do believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That you really do believe that that he has the power to get you through this. And and not to fix everything overnight. Not to make things easier as soon as you walk out the door. But to be with you and to provide for you for what you need. And the suffering, suffering is just a place where God pushes you closer to that. And so the band's going to play. I invite you to stand. I invite you to sing.